Chapter Five of In the Line of Battle, edited by Walter Wood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: An Anzac's Adventures. When the German blood-stained eagle and its vulture-hearted chief made war on little Belgium, they held the fond belief the British lion had grown too tame and dared not interfere. But when old England called the roll, Australia answered, "Here." that is part of one of the marching songs of the anzacs and it will go down to history as surely as john brown's body has descended to our own generation it was written for a particular australian battalion but it applies to all the glorious regiments that have won immortality in gallipoli this anzac's story shows how the sons of the empire rallied to the call of the motherland and helped so much to carry out that unexampled undertaking in the dardanelles of which our descendants alone can be the fairest judges. The narrator is Trooper Rupert Henderson, of the 6th Australian Light Horse. I was a sheep-overseer when I joined the Australian Light Horse. Before that I was a jackaroo on a twenty-thousand-acre station. What is a jackaroo? Well, a cross between a kangaroo and a wallaroo, and applied to a man it means that he does anything that comes along my boss's station was twenty-five miles from the nearest town but that's nothing of a distance in australia and we used to have some merry parties when we had a day off and drove or rode to the town for a change and it was to the town that we swarmed just after the war broke out bosses and men rich and poor a fine young fellow a squatter's son mr david mcculloch wrote and asked me to join the light horse and i gladly did he tried hard to come too, but the doctor would not pass him, and to his intense disappointment he was rejected. He came to see me twice while I was training, and both times he tried to pass, but could not get through. That was the spirit which was shown when the call came to us to go and fight the Germans and the Turks, or anybody else that British troops were up against. We went into camp at Rosebury Park, Sydney, which is a race-course. The first light horse had to sleep in the stables, but we were comfortably camped. The hard floors of the stables were very different from the comfortable beds which had been left, but the fellows were mostly horsemen from the country, and didn't mind, because they were used to roughing it. Horses, saddles, equipment and uniforms were issued to us, and we were soon doing horse and foot drill. After six weeks of this training we went to Holdsworthy on the George's River, in the bush country snakes of all sorts swarm there tiger snakes black snakes copperheads and deaf adders all poisonous as well as the carpet snakes which are sometimes twenty feet long they are gorgeous things and look like bright-coloured carpets they are non-poisonous and our chaps let them coil round their necks and do all sorts of things at this place there was the german internment camp and already there were plenty of both military and civilian prisoners the camp was not cleared, it was just barbed wire for a guard camp, but the country round it was being cleared. We were very lucky in our training, and afterwards too, because we were under Colonel Cox, Fighting Charlie, we called him, who had seen service in South Africa, and was a fine soldier. It was midsummer and harvest time when, on December 17th, we left Holdsworthy for Sydney and we had the remarkable experience of going through three summers in one year. We started with our own, which we left in the tropics, 
when we got to egypt it was the egyptian summer and when we landed at the dardanelles it was the gallipoli summer in australia of course everything had given place to the war and army lorries and so on had cut the roads up frightfully they were full of ruts and holes and deep in dust but luckily a storm came on and the rain made it possible for us to travel in comfort i shall never forget that march to the transport to embark we marched in the night-time but all along the route the people were waiting for us nobody seemed to have gone to bed and as we marched along they cheered us and wished us luck the people gave us drinks and fruit and handkerchiefs and other souvenirs it was a wonderful and moving sight and the people kept it up right away to the Wulumulu wharf at sydney where we embarked on board the white star liner suvik we lay in harbour from sunday morning till monday afternoon i was on guard all the time we had plenty of visitors some of them trying to get chaps out for a last spell ashore but that had to be stopped of course and the officers sent the men down to stables the horses of my squadron c were below but the other squadrons had their horses on deck i am not going to dwell on the last parting and send-off we steamed away and on christmas day we were six days out and two days sail from albany western australia when we got there we picked up a magnificent fleet of sixteen transports and the australian submarine a e two which was afterwards lost then the war seemed to be really with us the anzacs the famous word which is formed of the initials of the words australian and new zealand army corps we came through suez and port said and did not go off the boats till we got to alexandria we stayed a night at ismalia and there as the beginning of our fighting with the turks we came under their fire or rather we heard it this made us feel that we were getting into things and we listened with immense interest to the boom of the guns at the same time we piled up our ship with bales of hay as a protection and mounted machine-guns and fervently hoped that the turks would come on and give us a chance against them but we were not molested they did not interfere with us then but we soon had plenty to do with them it was march thirty first when c squadron disembarked at alexandria and got into the train with major white in charge we went to cairo and then unloaded our horses and took them walking to a place ten miles outside the city and there practically in the desert we camped and for three months we had steady mounted drill which made us as fit as fiddles we had real dry heat and no rain all the time but this did not trouble us being australians and used to droughts but we were glad when at the end of three months the order came for us to pack up our kits and leave for the dardanelles we had the infantry kit served out to us and in the middle of may we were back in cairo where we saw a lot of our chaps who had come back wounded from the dardanelles we found ourselves once more at alexandria and then in two days we were at the dardanelles of which we had heard and talked so much and where we had been so eager to go we had left egypt on a peaceful sunday afternoon now we were in the very thick of a wonderful and exciting war for we were being towed ashore in pinnaces each holding about two hundred fifty men half the regiment and were under heavy fire gunboats were booming away shells were bursting and aeroplanes were sweeping about the sky all these things gave us a good idea of what was going on how did we take it not being used to the business 
Well, the chaps sat in the pinnaces and looked at one another to see how they stood it. We were landing in broad daylight, the boats were packed, bullets were dropping all around us, sending nasty little spits of water up, and bullets from rifles and machine-guns were whizzing over our heads. I was watching the impression it was having on the others. Some of our chaps were wearing war medals, and I made up my mind to carry on as they were doing. If they took it all right, so would I. They did take it all right. As the bullets dropped around us, I heard such remarks as, By Jove, if that hit a fellow it would hurt him. Then men would laugh. Our colonel, I was sitting near him in the pinnace, looked stern and calm. He knew better than most of us what it meant. We were lucky in our landing, for we had no casualties, but a lot of the other troops who were landing at the same time and in the same way were picked off. We lay off till one of the naval boats got alongside. We all tumbled into her and were taken to the beach for landing. The Turks saw us landing and gave us five shells, but these did not hurt anybody. We were told to hurry up, but we didn't need telling to do that and as soon as the boat was at the shore we hopped on to a little wharf and found ourselves in the thick of some Indians who were unloading sheep. So little did we need telling to hurry up, that I well remember how we rushed through the sheep in our eagerness to get to shelter. We were in fine spirits, and made the best of it, but as soon as we landed we realized what we were in for. A shell came and burst amongst a fatigue party, knocking the men about badly and wounding half a dozen but luckily not killing anybody. This showed us how necessary it was to take cover, and when we had got some distance up the heights and were ordered to dig in, we set to work with a will, and we readily obeyed the order to keep our heads well down, as the shrapnel was bursting over the top of us. Our regiment was keeping well together. The colonel was in a gully just below me when a shell burst over us. It seemed to be high, and we did not realize the danger of such explosions. This shell seemed to be harmless, but I soon discovered that a fragment or bullet of it had struck the colonel in the leg. As this was the headquarters, the doctor was handy, and he attended to the colonel straight away, and sent him to the beach on a stretcher. Two minutes afterwards, one of the squadron clerks got shot with a shrapnel bullet. This also happened near me, and I saw what happened to him. The bullet struck him just by the right temple, he had the closest possible shave of instant death, and carried the eye away. This chap was put out of action at once, and was sent on to Malta. About ten days later he wrote to us, saying what rotten luck he had had. But he was a cheerful soul, and made the best of things, though he said very truly, I have only had a one-eyed view of Malta. We got dug in. There were holes in front of us about four feet deep with head covering about two feet of earth on top of us. But these did not give much protection from shells that burst just overhead. Some of the men filled empty biscuit tins with earth, and put them alongside to protect their legs from stray and spent bullets, and these proved very useful. When we had dug in, we were ordered to eat our iron rations for tea. Then, about eight o'clock, they called the regiment to fall in, as the Turks were going to attack us. We stood up as reinforcements at a place called Shrapnel Gully, and well it deserved its name, as we soon learned, for there were a terrible lot of casualties there, especially amongst the fatigue parties which had to go to the beach for water. You will see that we were initiated straight away. We did not know the danger of it at the time, 
and never thought that we should be so soon put through it after landing. But it was astonishing to see how well the chaps settled down to the business. We had been landed only a few hours, and yet we were standing to arms, waiting for the Turks to come on. We expected them with a rush, for we had been told that Enver Bey, the Minister of War, had ordered that the Anzacs were to be thrown into the sea. Well, we didn't mean to be thrown. We were standing on open ground. There were two very high hills, and we were in the gully at the bottom. Some of our troops were dug in on the top of the hills, and the Turks were dug in in front of us, some of them being not more than fifty yards away. It was a pitch-dark night, and a nerve-wracking job waiting for the promised onslaught. Time passed, and it seemed as if the Turks would never come. But at three in the morning they let themselves loose. The word was passed along, the enemy is advancing in front, and we were all ordered to stand fast till two blasts of the whistle had been sounded. It was hard to make out anything in that inky blackness, even with the eyes of Bushmen, but we knew that the Turks had crawled out of their trenches, and that they were going to throw themselves upon us. Then two shrill blasts struck the still night, and instantly there was a fearful commotion, for the Turks hopped up from the ground and charged, yelling and firing, and making all sorts of deafening noises, amongst which we noticed a trumpeter doing his best to blow our own call of the officer's mess. They seemed to blow anything that came along, so as to confuse us in the pitch-darkness, and a startling business it was, too, to peer into the blackness and see the figures of the Turks by the light of the bursting shells and crackling rifles. Never while I live shall I forget the fight in the first night we were ashore in Gallipoli. We did our best to see what was going on, by looking through the potholes and the sandbags of the trenches, though at night you could look over the tops of the parapets, but it was little enough that we could make out in the darkness. We had our magazines loaded and our bayonets fixed. The infantry alongside were in posses, as we called them, holes dug in the trenches to keep a man from being exposed. Two men were in each posse, one firing and the other loading for him so that a constant fire was kept up. One of our fellows, terribly excited, had crawled up onto the sandbags, and there he stood, just seen in the darkness by the flashes of fire, for about ten minutes, when he was ordered down. At this time I was a non-combatant, one of the stretcher-bearers, and I was just standing, waiting for someone to get hit. So I could see everything that was going on. The shells were flying round all the time, making a fearful noise, and an Indian battery above us was doing good work. In a posse, high above us, were the machine-guns, and we could see even in the darkness what havoc they were causing amongst the enemy. In the loud cries that arose I heard a Scotchman of our regiment shout, "'Here comes a big Turk with a brick in his hand!' We peered into the blackness, and saw a big fine Turk crawling on the ground about five yards away, holding in his hand something that looked like a brick. The machine-guns got him just as he jumped up. The bullets fairly smothered him, and he dropped like a thousand of bricks. Later on I had a good look at him, and found that the thing he carried was not a brick but a bomb. He had no boots on, but his feet were wrapped in cloth, so that he made no sound. He had managed to get within ten paces of us. The din quieted down as daylight came, which was about five o'clock. We looked eagerly round us to see what had been done, and noticed the dead Turks everywhere, many of them in clusters of half a dozen, 
just as they had been mown down by our machine guns. Later on we learned that the number of the Turkish dead was two thousand, so that the ground was fairly strewn with bodies. We were ordered back to our trenches, where we had breakfast and a bit of rest, but at ten o'clock we were told to fall in again as the Turks were making another charge. The enemy did come on, but rather half-heartedly, and they were repulsed without our aid. They had made a fine and brave dash in the night, as we saw. They never got into our trenches, but we were told that they had rushed in farther round, where the New Zealanders were, but they had been bayoneted straight away. In the afternoon the Turks put up a white flag and asked for an armistice to bury the dead. A big old Turk walked towards us, and he was met by Captain R. J. A. Massey, a famous Australian amateur champion, an all-round athlete of splendid physique. The Turk was blindfolded and brought into our trenches and then taken to headquarters, and after he had been questioned an armistice was granted. The firing ceased, and the Turks came out with all their stretcher-bearers, and our stretcher-bearers, and diggers went out too, and the burials went on, and not before they were necessary, for the stenches were awful. This sad work was being done, when our artillery observers noticed that the Turks were bringing up guns and reinforcements from the gully at the back of our chaps, and we were ordered to come in. That ended the armistice for the time, and the Turks at the back were fired on and their little game stopped. Next morning there was another armistice, for it was absolutely necessary to get on with the burials. The atmosphere was almost unendurable and even on landing the stench from dead mules and so on was so horrible that it nearly made me bilious. On that second morning I was able to see that a lot of our chaps were lying between our parapet and the Turk's parapet. We made an exchange of bodies, and having got our men's identification discs, we buried them in the small trenches so that the fighting places became graves. All these things that I have told about happened within thirty hours of our landing, and the fortune of war had sent some of the Anzacs to their last resting place, and put others, wounded, on the list for home. Men were sent off, their fighting careers ended, after having been in the enemy's country for only a few hours. We were plenty philosophical over the business. I remember one of the men in my squadron saying, If your name's on a bullet, you're going to stop it. Soon afterwards a 4.7 got him. The Turks used to fire like mad. It was astonishing to see how many bullets they fired, and even at that early stage our men, when off duty, were asleep and taking no notice of them. At this time we were opposite Lone Pine, attached to the 4th Australian Battalion as infantry. After the fighting we had exactly a month in the trenches, and then relieved some infantry who had had three weeks of solid fighting. We were relieved and went to a rest camp near Gaba Tepe. We had seven days there, with a good deal of excitement one way and another, and plenty of casualties, for we were being called out every day. It was rumoured that Achi Baba was going to fall, and we were ordered into the firing line as supports for the fifth light horse. The fifth were going out in front to draw the Turks' fire, and keep reinforcements from going down to Achi Baba. Some of the sixth and seventh light horse were to stand by and act as reinforcements. My troop was in the firing line. The fifth hopped out right on the beach, and ran for Gaba Tepe under cover of the ridges. The seventh got up on our left. We were in the middle. 
a squadron of the seventh ran along under cover of the ridge in the same direction as the fifth they went a good while without drawing the fire of the turks who did not seem to notice them but fire was opened at last still the advance continued more cautiously now our fellows crawling when they could for shelter the turks got a few lucky shells in amongst the fifth and the casualties began to come in there were some odd incidents our sergeant was peering through a lookout with a pair of glasses his right hand being round them another sergeant said let's have a peep our sergeant pulled his head back and straightened himself but still held the glasses with his hand in front of the hole the other sergeant was just stepping up to take the glasses when a bullet came through the hole and went clean through the hand that still held the glasses putting our sergeant out of action we took him to the dressing station and he was not long before he was back in the firing line which is more than would have happened if the sergeant had been still bending down and had got the bullet in his head he was a nice chap a station manager from queensland in about two hours volunteers were asked for to bring in wounded colonials from the front there were a good many casualties by this time and plenty for the stretcher-bearers to do we got to two men who we saw at once were very badly wounded they were pretty well sheltered and it was thought better to leave them where they were for the present and not try to move them one man had his foot blown off by shrapnel and he was otherwise very badly wounded a stretcher-bearer had bound him up roughly and put a tourniquet on to stop the bleeding and another chap had carried him on his back to shelter several of the stretcher-bearers were killed and wounded at this time but i do not think that the firing on them was deliberate the other man was a trumpeter he was a little chap and we called him scotty because he had gone out to australia from scotland he was wounded in the abdomen and was in agony but we managed to relieve his suffering with half a grain of morphia the flies were swarming and were terribly troublesome i tried to keep them off with a wet towel I had to wet it with salt water, so that they should not annoy him. I noticed that his boots were torn, and I took them off. I then saw that his legs had not been dressed, and he had been lying there for some time. I put iodine on the wounds. Scotty was rather cheery, and when the padre came up and said, Well, how are you? He answered, I'm feeling pretty good now. When the colonel went up to him, Scotty said, I'm going to die oh no you're not said the colonel you'll get all right again don't let that worry you you'll soon be playing christmas calls for us to that scotty made a reply which i shall never forget yes he said i shall die i can smell it that was his real expression and i suppose he meant that he could smell death scotty wanted the colonel to take charge of some little trinkets and things his pay-book and a photograph of two children give these to the wife he said then he broke into annie laurie and sang a verse of it he sang the song fairly well it was a good attempt for a man in the straits that he was in at six o'clock he died and was buried the same night after sundown at the place where we were and that was a big cutting called chatham's post named after one of the officers it was a deep cutting in the side of the hill these two chaps were lying there on stretchers and it was very hard for a bullet to hit them scotty was just taken to the back of the parade at the back of chatham's post a place called shrapnel green it was a green field when we first went 
but it was soon trodden down and made bare by gun and rifle fire and there scotty was laid to rest from the burial we went back to the dressing station and carried the wounded trooper lane they called him down to the beach the padre asked lane if he would like a wad that is a pannikin of tea and lane said he would i helped him to sit up and i held the wad for him he drank the tea cheerfully though he must have been in awful agony they took him along the beach he did not say much but never complained when he did speak it was to ask who's that lying there or how is he getting on he was the best i saw in the whole time i was there on the way to the beach there were wire entanglements to stop the turkish patrols the stretcher-bearers fell into the entanglements and dropped lane but he never thought about himself what he said was are you hurt i am glad to say that he is here in england like me and has pretty well got over it though he has lost his foot seventeen men were hit by the shell that knocked lane out we settled down again to the fighting game with the turks who kept us very lively especially with a gun that we called beachy bill this gun played on the beach whenever there was a sign of our movements and it became a common thing to say beachy bill's got somebody again that turkish gun caused more casualties than all the rest put together the monitors used to go for it and i believe they bombarded it out of existence more than once a new gun was soon at work again but to us it was always beachy bill when we first got to gallipoli we did not know the tricks of the trade but everybody soon got fly and that helped us a lot in tackling beachy bill and lessening his bag there's a lot more to say but i will only tell you about one more thing and that is the blowing up of some turks our trenches and those of the turks almost met in places and bombs were thrown from one to the other that was a lively exchange of greetings but it didn't lead to much something more definite was wanted and so our people began to dig a tunnel at a very narrow junction so as to blow up the turkish trenches and make our own trench line straight instead of being as it was twisting and zigzag it was a real turk hunt and just the sort of work that our chaps revelled in this affair like most of our scraps was done in the darkness which made it all the more thrilling well we dug and sapped and tunnelled towards the turks and when everything had been got ready powder was packed in sandbags and fuses were put to them the deeper the sandbags the worse the explosion all was ready at last the powder bags were packed the fuses were lit and then the eleventh and twelfth battalions began to finish the work which the artillery had begun the guns had started at five o'clock they went on booming till nine then there was a fearful sound which was louder than the loudest thunder i have ever heard accompanied by an immense mass of red fire in the blackness of the night i was two hundred yards away but the very earth on which i stood shook and shivered with the upheaval as soon as the crash came our chaps hopped up and rushed the shattered trenches they found that a big crater had been made by the explosion and that most of the turks had been stiffened those who were left were either bayoneted or bombed the turks did not counter-attack that day they had had enough of it we had a good few casualties but it was an effort that was worth while because it showed that if we wanted a place we could take it and at any time we liked i saw all this very clearly for i was going backward and forward all the time as a stretcher-bearer the turks gave us no chance and we gave them none 
but at the same time they did not do anything that I would call really dirty or out of the way. A lot of them were fine fellows physically. Some of the Turkish diggers we got, as prisoners, had no fighting gear on them at all. They were just peasants who had been brought up to do the work. At last I fell ill with dysentery and gastritis, and came home on a huge hospital ship, with four thousand more sick and wounded soldiers. We had a six days' run to Southampton, and had just under sixty deaths on board. They were buried at sea in batches, the biggest being eleven, and very solemn it all was. Now I have done, but I want to tell of just one more little thing that happened here in England, where I have been in hospital, and where people have been so good to us. It was Christmas time, and we were having a Sunday evening service in hospital. We were asked what hymns we would like, and a chap spoke out and said, Let's have, we plough the fields and scatter, the good seeds on the land. The parson was puzzled. He hardly thought we could, because it was Christmas time, and this was a harvest hymn. And it's harvest time now at home in Australia, the chap said. So we had the good old hymn, and it took us back to home twelve thousand miles away. I think the Anzacs did what they set out to do. End of chapter 5